We want to read our scripture texts this morning. Our Old Testament text is found in Jeremiah, the 51st chapter, the first 10 verses. You'll recognize right away that God is speaking through Jeremiah a judgment on Babylon. Now, you want to hear what God says about Babylon, both what characterizes Babylon and what judgment's going to befall Babylon, and hold that in your mind a little bit, and then we'll read Revelation 18 just a little bit. So listen here to God's Word. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am going to arouse against Babylon and against the inhabitants of leb the spirit of a destroyer. I will dispatch foreigners to Babylon that they may winnow her and may devastate her land. For on every side they will be opposed to her in the day of her calamity. Let not him who bends his bow bend it, nor let him rise up in his scale armor. Do not, so do not spare her young men, devote all her army to destruction. They will fall down slain in the land of the Chaldeans and pierced through in their streets. For neither Israel nor Judah has been forsaken by his God, the Lord of hosts, although their land is full of guilt before the Holy One of Israel. Flee from the midst of Babylon, and each of you save his life. Do not be destroyed in her punishment, for this is the Lord's time of vengeance. He is going to render recompense to her. Babylon has been a golden cup in the hand of the Lord, intoxicating all the earth. The nations have drunk of her wine. Therefore, the nations are going mad. Suddenly, Babylon has fallen and been broken. Wail over her. Bring balm for her pain. Perhaps she may be healed. We applied healing to Babylon, but she was not healed. Forsake her and let us each go to his own country. For her judgment has reached to heaven and towers up to the very skies. The Lord has brought about our vindication. Come and let us recount in Zion the work of the Lord our God. Amen. Our gospel lesson today is from the Gospel of Matthew, the 12th chapter. Let me get back there a little bit here. We'll be reading verses 38 through 45. So once we begin reading, and it says that uh, Jesus answers the Pharisees, all the rest of this will be words spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, anyway, listen here to God's word. Then some of the Pharisees and scribes said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But Jesus answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to, her, to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless waste, 
places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Amen. Then our primary text today is from Revelation chapter 18, the entirety of that chapter. This is the last time we'll take huge chunks of Revelation, you know, whole chapters at a time. We've had to do that because I want to finish Revelation before I retire. You know, I don't want to leave that all hanging. So uh, from this point on, we have eight more weeks. So we'll take the, the last four chapters, we'll divide them in half basically, and we'll have a little easier time of getting through the, the whole text. But we still have this day to go through the entirety of Revelation 18. Listen here to God's Word. After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons, and a prison of every a prison of every unclean spirit, and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. For her sins have been piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back even as she has paid, and give back to her double according to her deeds. In the cup which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her. To the degree that she has glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, and I am not a widow, and will never see mourning. For this reason, in one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For the Lord God who judges her is strong. And the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city of Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore, cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and every kind of citron wood and every article of ivory and every article made from very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble and cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and the cargoes of horses and chariots and slaves and human lives. The fruit you long for has gone from you, and all things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you, and men will no longer find them. The merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city, she who was clothed in fine linen 
and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour such great wealth has been laid waste. And every shipmaster and every passenger and sailor and as many as make their living by the sea stood at a distance and were crying out as, crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will not be heard in you any longer, and no craftsman or any craft will be found in you any longer. And the sound of a mill will not be heard in you any longer. And the light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer. <laughs> and the voice of the bride and the bridegroom will not be heard in you any longer. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. Amen. We'll take just a few moments and bow our heads and silently meditate upon God's Word, which we've read. Heavenly Father, we are glad to say those words in prayer. You're our Father. You care for us. You have our good always at the forefront. And you're in heaven. That is, you rule over all. You are able and you're willing to bring your purposes to bear in our lives. So we ask today, Lord God, that you do your good work by your spirit, by your word in each of our lives. May we hear what you have to say. May you speak to us. Uh, we thank you for your word, which is right and good, living and true, able to discern the thoughts and intentions of our very hearts. So come and do that good and gracious work. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and the Lord of all. Amen. <clears throat> so who is Israel? It's a good question. Who is Israel? And the short answer is this. <clears throat> Israel is the people redeemed by God. Redeemed by God from abject slavery. Without contributing anything to that. We're thinking of Israel coming out of Egypt. They were there held in abject slavery. They didn't raise an arm. They didn't raise a sword. They didn't do anything at all. They just had to walk out when God told them to. He did it. And he delivered them from the Egyptians, brought them through the Red Sea, and took them across the wilderness uh, to bring them into the Promised Land. Along the way, he gave them his law and his ordinances, that is, his word. No other nation in the world had that. No other nation in the world knew what it was that God required of us. They had that. And they were to be a reflection of his glory in how they conducted their lives. As they lived by God's word, by, as they lived by God's law, they were to be a reflection of his glory. They were 
to be a light to the nations, different from all the rest of the nations, standing out different from all the rest. Calling other nations, come and hear what God has said. It's a great calling. It's a great calling that God has given to Israel. With that as background, let us ask, let us ask another question. Who is Babylon the Great in Revelation 18 that we just read? Now, the final bowl of God's wrath was poured out back in chapter 16, verse 17 and following. And subsequent to that, there's going to be a series of explanations of what's happened and, and what's going to flow from that. Uh, we saw last week in chapter 17, we received explanations about the woman, about the beast, about uh, the harlot, uh, the waters, and all, all we, we saw there were explanations there. Today, uh, we're going to see some more explanations, I believe. Now, you remember the woman was the one who sat on the beast, but also sat on the waters. And I've had people ask me since, well, wait, how, how can that be? And well, and we saw that the, the beast was those uh, seven hills and had ten horns and all that. Uh, Rome was the foundation of the Jewish state's authority. Rome was what propped it up. So the woman was sitting on the beast. Remember the Jewish authorities, in order to be able to crucify Christ, had to get Pilate's authorization. He's the one who authorized that. And so, you know, Israel set on Rome. Now, the uh, text last week in 17.5 told us something about that woman. Here's what it says. On her, that is the woman or the harlot, on her forehead, a name was written, a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. So you know who it is, except you don't. It's a mystery, right? <laughs> that, that's why I raised the question of uh, who is Babylon the Great that we see here in Revelation 18. Many commentators believe that Babylon in Revelation 18 is Rome, the city of Rome and the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, Rome itself, the city, was supreme at that time. All for, for a number of centuries, she was supreme. She had all the power. If you wanted to talk about world powers or superpowers, it was Rome. She conquered all the world that was known to her. She did that. She had great influence. <clears throat> she could tell people do this, do that, whatever. Other countries, other nations, other lands. And they would do it they, or else. You know, they have to do that. And she was a source of great wickedness. Did all those things. Uh, she was that in her time. Now... So a lot of people think, well, this Babylon the Great here in Revelation 18 is Rome. We suggest that instead Babylon the Great is in fact Jerusalem in Israel in the A.D. 60s, certainly. Now, I want to give you some reasons why we think such is the case. And you're welcome to take those and uh, take them to the bank or throw them against the wall, or ignore them, I guess is what you could say. But here are the reasons why I think Babylon the Great should be identified 
with Jerusalem in the A.D. 60s and earlier. In verse 6, we're told that the angel says, pay her back as she has paid and give back to her double according to her deeds. In the cup which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her. So there's a double repayment. You know, there's a place in Jeremiah where the Lord speaking through there, through Jeremiah says this, for my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. I will first doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because they have polluted my land. There's that word land again. We've talked about that before. We'll see it again. Uh, but prophetically, it said that Jerusalem, Israel, was going to receive a double repayment, which is exactly what it says here, what Jesus says, or has the, the angel say in verse 6 of chapter 18 of Revelation. Now, also because of verses 20 and 24 of chapter 18, here's what it says. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. Jerusalem, for all of its grandeur and glory, was a great place of martyrdom where people, prophets, others had, Stephen was stoned there. Uh, she had all kinds of things done there. And of course, the Lord Jesus himself was, was crucified there. Uh, Rome certainly killed lots of people too. Uh, Paul and Peter were, were executed there. Lots of other saints were. But no prophets from the Old Testament were executed there. Uh, and uh, so, I, I think that what it's saying here is that here's why Jerusalem is Babylon here, because the blood of her saints, the saints of the church, prophets and apostles are found in her. Then in verse 2 of Revelation 18, it says that uh, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. Uh, Matthew 12, the passage we read, Matthew 12, 38 through 45, really gives a good uh, summation of this, of what happens and why this might be the case with Jerusalem. So think of the very first verse that we read there, Matthew 12, 43. Well, it's not the first verse, but in this particular part it is. It says, now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find any. Uh, why waterless places? It doesn't have the water of life. That's why. It can't come and dwell in some place where there's a water of life. So it's looking for waterless places, but it doesn't find any. Uh, and so, What happens is next. It says, uh, thus, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Now, stop and think of what the ministry of Jesus and the apostles had been in Jerusalem. Jesus had cast out demons. He cleaned the place. He cleaned up the whole teaching. Had done all. He cleansed the temple. You know, we 
did that a while back. But uh, he did those things. He cleansed it. And the right teaching was there. And he had his witnesses there to, to share that teaching. And yet, they did not receive it. And so, when the uh, people refused that, the, the leaders and people of Israel refused that, even though there were thousands who received it, the bulk of them did not. That same, those wicked, evil spirits come back and they make it even worse. And so, what does it say next? It says, then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. So part of what characterizes Babylon the Great here in, in, in Revelation 18 is it's a dwelling place of wicked spirits, of demonic forces, things that are just bad. And I'm suggesting to you that that's what happened upon rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ, and they had a generation to... to experience that say, keep saying no, is that haunts of the devil came back in, or the, the evil spirits that did cause them to do all sorts of things. Now, uh, the last verse that we read from there from Matthew 12, the last half of the, that verse says this, that is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Now, you remember that He's talking about those folks. He's talking to Pharisees and Sadducees, people who are leaders in the community right then when Jesus is speaking to them. He says, what I've just described to you will happen to this evil generation. And again, I think that suggests to us that there's the folks, those are the ones who persist and resist and say, no, something's going to happen to them. And... Uh, it came about in that generation, we'd say, in, in just a mere 35 or 40 years. Now, uh, there's one other reason why I think Jerusalem is the identity of Babylon the Great that we read about here. That's because earlier already, Jesus has identified Jerusalem with that which it is not. That is, it becomes the very thing it is not. So, in Revelation 11, verse 8, do we have it up here? We do. This is, remember when the two witnesses were, were, were killed, it was described where they, they were killed, it says this, the great city which mystically or spiritually is called Sodom, is called Egypt. Now what city might that be? Where also their Lord was crucified. There's only one place where the Lord was crucified. It wasn't Rome, it wasn't Babylon, it wasn't Damascus, it was Jerusalem. So, for all those reasons, I think Babylon the Great here in Revelation 18 is best understood as referring to Jerusalem. Now, what happens, or what has happened here, is a great transformation. Remember we said, who is Israel? What is Israel? Israel is the redeemed people of God who've received His law, His Word, who follow that, who, who come and, and he, he leads them out and they, they become a light to the nations. Well, they're not that. Did you hear what we read in, in uh, Jeremiah 51 verse 7? Listen to that description again. 
Babylon has been a golden cup in the hand of the Lord, intoxicating all the earth. The nations have drunk of her wine, therefore the nations are going mad. That's almost an exact description of what you find here in Revelation 18. That is, the two are made parallel. So here's the great mystery. That's why the, it's on, on, our, on our forehead in chapter 17, it's a mystery. How can you become that which you're not? Because that's not what the people of God were meant to be. That's not what Jerusalem was meant to be. That's not what Israel was meant to be. But they become that which they ought not to be. Exactly. It's a, now I'd like to put, put on the screen here the, uh, the things becoming what you're not. What happens? If you're supposed to be light, instead you become darkness. And so the nation no longer was light declaring the, the true and right understanding of, of the Scriptures and what God had given to them. They're supposed to be sweet, bring hope and help. They didn't they become bitter. They're supposed to proclaim the truth. Instead, they pro pro proclaimed a lie. When you're faithful, all of a sudden your faithfulness stops and you become an adulteress. If you've been virtuous, you become a harlot. Not just an adulteress, but a harlot. And instead of being wise, you become fools. That typifies the great negative transformation. How does someone become what they're not supposed to be by doing those things? That, that's what happens. You'll read that same thing, by the way, in Romans chapter 1, when it talks about people who reject, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Remember that? One, was that 18, 16 or 18? And then later on it says what happens to them? God delivers them over. And they can do whatever they want. And they do this, this stuff right here. From sweet, they become bitter. From truth, they go to lying. From being wise, they become fools. And so it's a reversing, a reversal of the calling with which God had called them. Now, I'd like to raise a question. How about verse 4? How much time we got? We got plenty of time. Still, we'll see how we, as we go on, we'll see how that works out. Let's look at verse 4. It's an interesting verse. He hears another voice from heaven, saying, come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. Now, I think this is a general call. We can understand this is a general call to all of God's people uh, to come out from amidst of the nations and the defiling stuff there, to not live like they live. You should live differently. We all should live differently than what the world around us lives. So, there's that. Uh, that that's part of what we talked about in the introduction up there that God gave His people their law, and, and we, we live by that as well. We, we want to do it. It's a good thing. And because we're His people, we can live according to His law. We don't live according to His law to become His people, but because we are His people, we live according to His law. So you have to make sure you get it right that way. Now, the early disciples had to do that as well. They, had, they got thrown out of the synagogues. They got persecuted by uh, Gentile and Jew alike, and they had to come out and say, well, here's who we are. Uh, so do we in our day. But what about, have you thought about this? We've been going through all this and talking about the great destruction that happened to Jerusalem and to the land of Israel in AD 65, or actually 66 to 70. What about the Christians that were living there? What happened to them? Did they experience all this? Some of this they did. But this part here in verse 4, I think, I'm going to suggest something to you. It is a parallel, and it's, it's, it's a 
setting forth of what Jesus in the Olivet Discourse says in, in Luke 21. So, there's this warning in Luke 21. It says, uh, then those who are in Judea, well, no, no, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. So, they, they have these words of Jesus. They do, well, when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies, uh, recognize that her desolation is near. There's bad stuff going to happen. It goes on, what does Jesus say then? Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those who are in the midst of the city must leave. And those who are in the country must not enter the city. So, all kind of things are happening. <clears throat> There's war going on. They're being invaded by the Romans. What are they going to do? Lots and lots of people fled to Jerusalem for safety. He tells the Christians not to do that. Do you know what's happening there? What Jesus says about this? The very next verse says this, because these are the days of vengeance. Remember, twofold, doublefold, these are the days of vengeance so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. So, what happens to the land? It says this, Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land. Again, the word for land, there's the word gay. We've talked about it in previous weeks. And wrath to this people. That happened in a severe, horrible way. All during the mid to six late 60s and on up into the 70s, mid-70s. <coughs> and so, our question is this. Uh, well, let, let's do the last verse here. And I have another verse from Luke 21. Uh, it says, here's what happened. It says, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And that's exactly what happened to Jerusalem. Uh, it's going to fall. Jews are going to be out of there. They'll let some of the Jews come back in. There's going to be the Bar Kokhba revolt in like 8120. They put that down. And then Jews are forbidden to live there for a long, long time. There's still Christians who live there. We'll see about that in just a second. But they happen. This happens to them that they are driven out. Now, did anyone, here's the question I want to ask you. It's still in verse 4 of chapter 18. It's an interesting verse, and you don't hear much about it. Did anyone heed that warning? Have you ever heard of a people, a church, a group of people in Judea or in Jerusalem in the AD 65, 66, 67 time range where they heeded this warning? Well, I'd like for us to uh, hear from what, who's called the father of church history, a guy named Eusebius. My wife loves that name because I wanted to name one of our kids Eusebius, and she wouldn't let me. So, she loves it that they didn't get named that. Eusebius means blessed. But anyway, uh, Eusebius was a, a great first church historian, among others. And uh, he, he lived from, say, from 260 to maybe 340, 345, somewhere in through there. So, he lived right at the time when there was the, the, the big bad persecution in the time of Diocletian and all that at the end, and up to the time when, when uh, Constantine, and Const 
Constantine's sons reigned over the Roman Empire. And he was part of all that. He wrote a, a couple different lives of Constantine, which are somewhat controversial. But anyway, here's what he has to say. I think I want to get there now. Yeah, here's what he says about uh, what happened there. It says, but the people of the church in Jerusalem had been commanded by a revelation vouchsafed to approved men there before the war to leave the city and to dwell in a certain town of Perea called Pella. That's what he writes. He says the church in Jerusalem had been commanded by revelation. He doesn't say if it's an angel or what, but uh, somehow God made a revelation known to their leaders. We need to get out of here. And where we should go is we should go to Pella, which is across the Jordan River to the east and a little bit north, about, I don't know, 50, 60 miles away from Jerusalem. Uh, and so they did that. Here's what he's, Eusebius writes next. And when those that believed in Christ had come thither from Jerusalem, then as if the royal city of the Jews and the whole land, there's the word land again, land of Judea, were entirely destitute of holy men, the judgment of God at length destroyed or totally destroyed that generation of impious men. He says it happened. We recognize it. Oh. And it, you, you can read that there. Now, we've not heard much about that. Uh, what that's called is called the flight to Pella. Uh, used to be people knew about this, but in the last 150 years, people have forgotten about it. The flight to Pella, that God delivered his own people out from the midst of his wrath so they would not experience the full horrors of his wrath. said, come on out, come on out and go over there, go over yonder to Pella. And they did. Uh, now, Eusebius describes what happens. He says this, but the number of calamities which everywhere fell upon the nation at that time, the thousands of men as well as women and children, and the excessive sufferings endured by those that fled to Jerusalem. So there were those who fled to Jerusalem herself, itself, and how at last the abomination of desolation stood in the very temple of God. That's when the Roman legions had their, their banner up there. All these things anyone that wishes may find accurately described in the history written by Josephus. <laughs> Interesting stuff. We've quoted from Josephus oftentimes. But Eusebius says, if you want to know about that, go read Josephus. And he does. Last summer when we were on vacation, my wife and I, we took Josephus along with us. And as I was driving, Pat would read to me until she fell asleep and I fell asleep. And then we'd, oh, we'd wake up and, and away we'd go. But we, we, we read a whole bunch of Josephus trying to get to this. We never quite got to the destruction of Jerusalem because he writes very uh, effusively. He, he writes a lot. But it, you can read it. I've read it, so you can, you can read it. It's, it's all right. But he, he describes that. And Eusebius says that's where, if you want to get a good sort of play-by-play -play account, go to, to Josephus and you'll find it. Uh, now, the numbers that were involved there, he tells us, he says this, this writer, that is Josephus, records that the multitude of those who were assembled from all Judea at the time of the Passover to the number of three million souls were shut up in Jerusalem as in a prison. So, 
you see the enormity of the calamity that befell. Now, we're getting a little short on time. <clears throat> I could have told the story of a woman who uh, had gave birth to a child and they feeding him, but they, they were so short of food that uh, she said, well, what's better, to let this child die by starvation or to kill the child and I can eat the child and live and not, not die that way? And uh, tells the lady's name. And uh, anyway, so all kinds of horrible things happened during the siege of Jerusalem. Calamities beyond number. Uh, the destruction of the temple is the great transition completed. James the Just, if you remember, that would be Jesus' uterine brother, was martyred in A.D. 62. Uh, there was great unrest throughout all of Judea and all of Jerusalem from the early 60s all the way through till they started the war in 66 and beyond. War was declared in 66. Now, here's the rest of the story. Those people over in Pella, the church there, they come back after the war is over. So, here's Eusebius again talking about that. Here's what he says. After the martyrdom of James, that's why I mentioned that, in the conquest of Jerusalem, so one was 62, one was 70, those of the apostles and disciples of the Lord that were still living, so there's, these are guys who are alive who knew the Lord Jesus, <clears throat> came together from all directions with those that were related to the Lord according to the flesh to take counsel as to who was worthy to succeed James. So they got together because they wanted to have a leader, a bishop, a pastor for the church at Jerusalem. That's the mother church. Who should it be? They came together after all these things had happened. They came from all over the place to, to make this decision. And Eusebius goes on and says this, they all with one consent pronounced Simeon, the son of Clopas, of whom the gospel also makes mention to be worthy of the Episcopal throne of that parish. He was a cousin, as they say, of the Savior. For Hegesippus records that Clopas was the brother of Joseph. So, they all agree that this guy Simeon should be the guy who's the head of the church. He's the son of Clopas. Do you remember Clopas? It says it's mentioned in the Gospels. Where? Luke 24. When the two guys are sad, they're walking from Jerusalem over to where they're going to go, and Jesus comes and walks alongside them. They don't recognize him. It only tells the name of one of them, but the one's name is Clopas. And uh, what Eusebius says here is that Clopas was the brother of Joseph of Nazareth. Now, we know Joseph's married to Mary, but we didn't know who all his family was. He says, well, he was the brother of Joseph and, uh, of Nazareth. <coughs> that means that his son, Clopas's son, Simeon, would be a cousin of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he says here. I get sort of excited about all that. There's a lot of stuff that we don't know. Uh, he, he quotes his source for that. It says, a sippy, et cetera. Uh, <clears throat> why is this important to us? Why do I make a big point of this? Uh, first of all, there's this. Is the flight to Pella and back real? Is it history? Did it happen? Uh, we need to know if it happened or not. I'm going to quote from an article that uh, appeared in the Westminster Theological Journal back in 2003 by a Dutch fellow named Hallingen. And here's what he said. It's a whole article on, on just this flight to Pella. He says, this investigation has shown that the departure of the congregation from Jerusalem to Pella in the Decapolis does not only belong to historical factuality, that is, he, he's gone back and checked all kinds of sources, 
I didn't want to bore you with all those things today. All right, that's all right. But he says, it's a fact. It stands up to researching all the things that you do. That flight actually happened. It not only belongs to historical factuality, but also has historical significance. He's going to say what the significance is. It was not a one-way ticket, but as it were, a return ticket taken not to leave the past behind, but to enter the future. Now, what in the world does he mean by that? Uh, the Old Testament is fulfilled, it's not denied, and the New Testament is affirmed. It says that we don't have to worship in the temple. We don't have to worry about that. You know, it's always a big sort of looming thing over Christians. Well, do we need to, to worship in the temple or not? Do we need to do all the sacrifices or not? We read the, old, the New Testament is all filled with that, that controversy, and that's settled forever because the temple's gone. Now, here's what Philip Schaff, the great church historian, he writes about this, and he says uh, this, the awful catastrophe of the destruction of the Jewish theocracy must have produced the profoundest sensation among the Christians of which we can hardly form a true conception. If you were a Christian living during that time, during that era, and you hear that the, the temple in Jerusalem has been destroyed, been raised, it's all gone, what does that tell you? How does that affect you? How does that affect the way you think? I'm agreeing with Schaff. I think it had the profoundest sensation. It tells him something. It should tell us something as well. Schaff goes on to say this. It was the greatest calamity of Judaism and a great benefit to Christianity. A refutation of the one, a refutation of the Judaism, not Jew Jewishness, uh, not the Old Testament, of Judaism that was making its way without Christ. They were understanding the, the, the Old Testament without the Lord Jesus Christ there. It's a refutation of that, and it's a vindication and an emancipation of the other. So it's a vindication of Christian beliefs, of Christian teaching, what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. Christ is raised. Believe in Him. The promises for you and for all your children, as far off as many as will come, the promises for you, come believe in the Lord Jesus. And there's that emancipation, that freeing from somehow thinking we have to do all these things to be part of the people of God. No, we're made part of the people of God by grace, apart from anything we've ever done, in fact, because of all the things we've done. And then He empowers us to live for Him, a slow transformation. We're going from grace to grace, glory to glory to glory. You know, He transforms us in our lives. Schaff goes on and says this, it not only gave a mighty impulse to faith, but at the same time formed a proper epoch in the history of the relation between the two religious bodies, it separated them forever. You know, I've led, I don't know, four, five, six tours over to Israel. Some of you have been with me to Israel. We, they have wonderful guides there. They're Jewish guides. They know their Bibles frontwards and backwards and sideways and upside down, Old Testament and New Testament. They, they're wonderful. All of them, though, reject Jesus as the Messiah. You wonder, well, how can you know all that and still reject Jesus as the Messiah? Because if you reject Jesus as the Messiah, well, then you've, you, you've thrown it all out. We, 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 we can't be on, we're not on the same page. Jesus is the cornerstone. If you don't have Christ, you're lost. The answer one guide gave to us was because you know, 
It says when the Messiah comes, he'll bring peace. And we've not had peace. So how can that be the Messiah? They have all kinds of reasons. Now we would say, read Romans 5. Therefore we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Yeah. That's the peace you need most. Not peace in the world, you need peace with God. And eventually there's going to be peace, we believe that, we're working for that. But you need to have peace between you and God, and that cannot happen. It's impossible without the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I have one more segment of Revelation 18 to go through, that's verses 9 through 24. (laughs) Those people who are sitting here just moaned. They just rolled their eyes. I'm sure if I could see, if if this was the reverse camera and I could see all your faces, you'd say, oh no, oh no, oh no, John, don't do that. All right, I won't. (laughs) What I'll do, the reason I left left it like this is because it doesn't take a lot of, it's it's all the same thing. You know what it says? It says all those friends, all those who were their, their, their friends during, the, during all this sensuality and all this licentiousness and all these things, all those folks stood off to the side and lamented when the city fell, but they didn't help her. They cried because they lost revenues. They lost licentious living. Uh, they, they lost uh, inventory, things like that. But they didn't do anything at all to help her. In fact, they were crying because they could see if they saw, they could see in Jerusalem's calamity, their own ultimate calamity as well. So kings, merchants, and seafarers all stood off. They had genuine lament, but they didn't go to help. Now, the world will be your companion in indulgence, in sensuality, in all those kinds of things that lead you away from God. The world will be your companion, but the world will not be your companion when those things begin to be judged and be left behind. Two examples from contemporary here. Think Harvey Weinstein, think Jeffrey Epstein. Harvey Weinstein had all the friends in the world. He could do whatever he snapped his fingers and it happened. Not now. All of a sudden he got called to account for things that he had done. Though he had all this, these things he could do, they're not coming to help him. They're saying, yes, he's a bad guy. Jeffrey Epstein, he facilitated luxurious, sensuous, Wicked living for lots and lots of hotshot people. Not only did they not stand behind him, they hung him. I don't know of anyone in the world who thinks Jeffrey Epstein committed suicide. I don't know anyone who does that. They, they said, we got to get rid of that guy. He's got the goods on us. So the rest of Revelation 18 is simply saying, don't think all your friends of the world are really your friends. Now, you can apply that to your own selves and people who are leading you astray and going alongside and all that. They're not your real friends. When difficulties come, when the judgment of God falls, they'll stand afar off. We need to know that. So, what about us? What will our reality be? Put up the last slide, if you would. Again, it's one we've seen before. The United States and Western civilization was founded with Christian values, Christian truth. That's, no matter what they say, it's true. We're Christian. It used to be called Christendom, right? Yeah. Well, we don't wanna, we don't wanna say that anymore. How do we, how does Christendom become what it is not? 
It's when the light that had been shedding abroad, taking the gospel, becomes darkness. We've talked to people in other lands who say, we don't want American uh, movies to come to our land because of the wickedness they portray. They defile our youth. They defile us. And so, no longer is light the primary thing the West is known for. It's its sensuality. It's its wickedness. That which was sweet that would make life better for people becomes bitter. Instead of reconciliation, reconciliation, reconciling people, it, it causes antagonisms and things to go forward. Would have been the truth. Now they tell a lie. You're okay. You can do this. They don't tell the truth. The West doesn't. Instead of being faithful to our God, we've been adulterers. That is, we, we believed in other faiths, other religions, that they're all okay. They're not all okay. There's only one religion that's true religion. That's Christianity. We need to know that. We need to stand on that. And even, we did begin that way. That we didn't go out and wouldn't massacre all the rest. We just said there's, there's one truth. Instead of being virtuous, we became harlots. We give ourselves to anyone. I just thought, just come on, have at us, harlots. And in our wisdom, we became foolish. We've done that. Think of the foolishness that's in our land, in our court system, in our education system, in our economics right now. Foolishness. So, reality and reactions. The reality is Christ alone is Savior. He alone has truth. It's here in His Word, Old and New Testaments, and we need to receive that as the people of God. Receive it, believe it, hold it up. We need to let our light shine. We can't save anyone, but as we reflect the glory, the truth, the sweetness, the virtue, the faithfulness of God, He'll draw people to Himself because we'll lift up the Lord Jesus Christ, who, as Gary said, sacrificed Himself, the sacrifice for us, to deliver us from the bondage of sin and hell. Amen.